This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The state of Pennsylvania has been dominating the news lately. The Philadelphia Eagles made it to the Super Bowl, and the Philadelphia Phillies came within a heartbeat of uh, beating the Astros in the World Series last fall. The nation has also held its breath every time Pennsylvania has held an election. And now we have the junior senator from Pennsylvania telling us that he is recovering from his stroke very slowly, leaving the balance of power in the U.S. Senate uh, uh, a teeter-totter. So there's a lot of news coming out of Pennsylvania these days, but the latest and biggest education news is a legal decision. A lower court judge has decided that the financing of Pennsylvania schools that the, the, the way they do it, it's so inadequate, it's so inefficient, it's so inequitable that it violates the Pennsylvania state constitution. Well, that's quite a charge. And I have with me on the education exchange today, Rocco Testani, an attorney of law at Evershed Sutherland Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia. He served as a defense attorney in similar school finance uh, lawsuits in the state of Delaware and the state of Florida. So thank you, Rocco, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's good to be here, Paul. Thanks. Well, Rocco, um, in this uh, decision, William Penn, I like the name of this school, William Penn School uh, versus the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Uh, in, this, in this decision, the judge says that the financing of the schools is unconstitutional. That seems pretty bad. Uh, how much do they spend in... Pennsylvania per pupil are they are they starving the schools? Uh, no, they're actually one of the higher spending uh, states. They're um, uh, spending uh, above the U.S. average. They spend about sixteen thousand dollars per pupil. Um, the school districts um, at issue in this lawsuit, the, who were the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, spend it, spent between um, fourteen thousand and um, and $24,000 per student. So don't think you could say that their schools are being starved. They're, they're pretty well funded. So the school districts bringing the case are actually spending more than the state average. And the state average is actually more than the national average. So what's in the state constitution that's, that says that that's unconstitutional? Well, um, as in most states, there's a, there's a broad and vague provision in uh, Pennsylvania's constitution that speaks to public education. And the provision that the court relied on in making her uh, determination uh, is, uh, is as follows. It says, the General Assembly shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public education to serve the needs of the Commonwealth. So that's the extent of it. So thorough and efficient, thorough and efficient, it is not, uh, according to the judge. So what's the evidence that is presented in the case? What is it that the judge is relying upon to reach that conclusion? Well, it's a combination of looking at inputs and outputs in the schools, and she relied on both expert testimony as well as uh, a testimony from school district officials and some state officials. And on the input side, what she was basically uh, showing or, or concluded was that 
in a lot of instances in these six school districts that brought the case, they have uh, uh, larger class sizes, they have older textbooks, they don't have sufficient technology. And on the output side, um, uh, she recited evidence that uh, the students are performing uh, at relatively low levels on the state um, assessments. So fewer than half the students are proficient on, on English and, and math state assessments. So uh, that's kind of an overview of the evidence. There's obviously a lot more detail. It is an 800-page decision. 800 pages? Yes. No, no. Uh, what do you do in 800 pages? You know, if I submit an article of that length, it will be rejected out of hand. It will, it will not make it to the review process. It will be rejected out of hand. So what, it, what gives the right of a judge to hand down an 800-page decision? What, what's in it? Well, in her defense, it's double-spaced. So um, maybe it's not quite 800 pages as we think about it, but um, it's a lengthy discussion of the evidence, and I think the trial went on for several weeks. And so there were, uh, between the defense and plaintiff side, there were 10 expert witnesses um, who, who presented very substantial reports on a lot of different topics. Uh, a, a lot of them revolved around the question of what's the relationship between uh, spending on schools and student performance outcomes. A lot of evidence, uh, very detailed evidence about conditions in these particular schools and school districts. Uh, very detailed information about what the hallways look like, what the books look like, how old they are. There was testimony about one of the history books uh, apparently uh, said that the current president was Bill Clinton. So that kind of very detailed uh, evidence takes a long time to, to hear and a long time to, to lay out in the decision. And, and so it, it consumed quite a lot of pages. Now you're embarrassing me because I have written a textbook that I still ask my students at Harvard to read. And I think I've got uh, Bill Clinton as president, maybe it's Obama, as Obama as president. In some ways I think that's better than <laughs> doing anything more updated, but, uh, but it's out of date, right? But the way I look at it is, you're teaching institutions. You're you're looking at the systems as they have evolved over a long period of time. You're not trying to teach current affairs. You're trying to teach institutional practices that we've inherited from the past. So I, I've never felt like I have to apologize to my students. I tell them, look at I'll update it in class, okay? But you know, get the basics here from so. Uh, but even if it maybe I'm just a bad professor, maybe the school districts, these school districts don't know how to manage their money. But if they've got the money, then how can you blame you know, the state for the school districts and the ability to organize? Well, I think that's a very good point. And certainly as a defense that's that succeeded in in some states that that the local control, the local school districts are not managing their funds appropriately, that they do have enough funds and that the issue really is one of management uh, at the at the school and school district level. Here, the judge concluded that the, that the state has a constitutional responsibility to ensure that schools are providing a thorough and efficient 
system of public education and, and concluded that these examples uh, in the evidence indicated that, that it was not and that the problem was a lack of funds. Well, but you could say the problem is the school board doesn't run the schools well. So why doesn't she just fire the school board and uh, appoint some new folks in charge? Is there well, any reason why you, she thinks that the money will solve the problem? Yeah, this I think gets back to the to the expert evidence and also to the evidence of the, the presented by the by the school district people. Um, not surprisingly, a lot of the school district witnesses felt that they could be more effective if they had more funding. And, and that's a common theme that, that certainly happens and occurs in these cases, from my experience, that, that the folks that work in the schools um, who are well-intentioned um, uh, believe that if they had more, they could do more. Um, but that's probably true of any job. Um, in, in any uh, setting. but So there's that testimony, but I think the more serious testimony or the more persuasive, at least to the court probably, was the expert testimony from um, a number of witnesses who claimed to have done studies uh, looking at evidence over a long period of time that they contend conclusively demonstrates that when more funds are spent on schools, students do better. And, and so there's a body of research uh, along those lines uh, that she very uh, much accepted. Well, that's actually a, a topic that is uh, of interest to uh, uh, scholars across the country because the school finance issue has, you know, has gone on for years. And the, the bulk of the studies out there have shown that it's really hard to prove that more money is going to make a lot of difference in terms of student achievement. But there have been some recent studies that use very sophisticated, complex analyses that show that in specific cases where you, you've had some new money drop on the school system, that they've gotten a lot better. Uh, that's taken a bit of a hit lately with the COVID uh, uh, financing, because with COVID, you've had a huge increase in the amount of money available to school districts but we haven't seen that that huge increase in financing has had any impact on, on student uh, performance. In fact, all the signs are it's negative now. You know, you can blame it on to other factors that were simultaneous uh, with the pandemic. But nonetheless, money didn't offset that, those other factors, apparently. Well, it's an interesting point because there's a discussion in the, in the decision, in the Pennsylvania decision, along the lines that um, that school districts receive so much federal money that they're very worried about when it runs out. And so the, the witnesses took the position that they've got funds now to do various things, whether it's lower class size or have tutoring or improve facilities. But when that money runs out, they're really going to be in a, in, a, in a desperate situation. So that's how they um, addressed that testimony, which is, and, and fact, which is there is right now an abundance of federal funds in public schools. Yeah, no, there is an abundance of money in federal schools. And if money were to make all the difference in the world, it's really hard to see how we'd see these uh, uh, falling test scores that have been continuing even after the schools reopened and and the money was there and could be utilized and really doesn't seem to have had the uh, desired effect. Right, I agree. So now, okay, so let's say 
the judge feels that and money will make the difference. The school districts think it will make a difference. But really, it's up to the state legislature ordinarily to decide how the taxpayers' money is to be spent. When I vote for somebody for uh, office in my state legislature, I'm feeling like I'm actually helping make the decisions. I'm electing the people who are going to decide how the money in the state of Massachusetts is going to be allocated. And my relatives in Pennsylvania think the same thing. So how come this is not a legislative decision? Why is this something the courts feel they have uh, a responsibility to decide? Well, that's a long-standing debate, and Pennsylvania is an interesting case because in 1999, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that uh, challenges to uh, the adequacy of public education under this very constitutional provision that we're talking about was a political question, that it was a policy question to be decided by the legislature and by the executive branches of government, not by the courts. And that was in 1999. 2017, in a earlier proceeding of this case, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court reversed itself and said, well, actually it is a, uh, it is a question that the courts can entertain. And so what, and I'm not aware actually of any state where the Supreme Court has initially said that it is not a justiciable question or a question for the courts. And then later, not that long uh, later, uh, decides to say, well, actually, no, it, it can be decided by the court. So the hook, of course, is the language in the Constitution. And the court said that the General Assembly shall do this. It's in the Constitution. Therefore, a court can decide whether or not it's it's meeting its responsibilities. Well, now this is a lower court decision, uh, although you just did talk about the Supreme Court uh, changing its mind on the just you know on whether or not the courts can actually consider such a case. Now you have the case in practice. It's it's obvious this decision is obviously going to be appealed. Am I correct in saying that or? Well, yeah, I'm not sure how obvious that is. Um, there's been a political change in Pennsylvania from the time that this case was tried last year to now. And um, and so when that happens in, in states, and it wouldn't be the first state uh, where this has happened in the middle of a case like this, um, sometimes the new political establishment is not interested in appealing these kinds of decisions. So the time for them to appeal has not yet passed, um, so we'll see. Um, uh, but in, usually, a decision like this would be appealed um, by the state, um, and, and it would be decided by the highest court. So if they don't appeal the decision, then there's sort of a, a collaboration between the plaintiff and the defense, so to speak. The plaintiff brings the suit, and uh, by the time the decision is handed down, uh, the defense, for political reasons, decides to to fold, uh, and I suppose that's uh, that's a real possibility in the in the case here in Pennsylvania. It could happen. Um, you know, I think one of the parties that was in the case uh, that was strongly defending it were the uh, legislative uh, leaders, and I believe there was a change in in, in party um, in this last election. So. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. 
but it's brought against the state school board, isn't it? Or the state school superintendent? Is it it's the board of education as I read the defense? The department, so yeah, the department. Isn't, state. Up, isn't the board up? Isn't it the decision of the board to defend or not to defend? Yeah, the governor, though, of course, controls the board um, ultimately. And so the politics of it um, will come into play as they usually do in these matters. Um, uh, the legislature was particularly um, strong in its defense of, of the claims, uh, in this case, uh, more so really than the department. So then the question comes up as to, okay, so they they don't uh, uh, defend the case and, and now the decision has to be implemented. But that can be a very complex process because, uh, okay, I think the judge just says, Okay, legislature, you now work it out with the plaintiffs and you decide something in light of what I've just said. Isn't that, uh, that's sort of what I read. Is that, am I, do I have this right or, or what's You do, <laughs> yeah, you do. And she says that um, I've decided there's, you know, a violation of the constitution in Pennsylvania, but I'm going to leave it up to the legislat legislature and the executive branch to come up with a remedy based on my findings of what's, um, what the shortcomings are um, in the system. And so that is not unusual in these cases where the, the courts will uh, give the legislature and the executive branch an opportunity to craft a remedy. And then what usually happens uh, is that that gets implemented legislatively. And then if the plaintiffs are not satisfied with that remedy, then it will be challenged in court and we'll have a loop of judicial decisions back to legislature and so forth. New Jersey is a good example of this, um, which has been in litigation now for 30 years. There's, I think, 20 plus decisions of the New Jersey Supreme Court in their adequacy case uh, with this back and forth between legislature, remedy, and plaintiffs to court. And that's kind of the loop that is uh, likely to play out here. Well, we're talking about a fiscal cliff for education across the country right now. There's a lot of uh, people out there saying now that the federal money is going to dry up, and there's little doubt that it will dry up because the House of Representatives is not going to pass laws in the next couple of years that are going to be of the same nature as those that have been passed uh, recently, which have greatly expanded the federal funding role in education. So that's going to be that's going to be cut back. How much it's going to be cut back, we don't know, but it, there's going to be big time cuts. Now, that's going to create a situation in Pennsylvania where they're going to have to increase taxes on the Pennsylvania taxpayer if they're going to try to even just sustain the current level of educational expenditure. So this is going to create a little bit of a tight spot for the, uh, for the legislature, is it not? Yeah, I mean, which is why... Um which is why defending these cases and making sure that you control, if you're the executive or legislative branch of government, you really do want to guard uh, this uh, part of your budget, which in Pennsylvania, it's 37% of the state budget. It's the second um, highest item after Medicaid uh, in the state budget. And, um, and you're correct about the federal cliff. You're, you're, we're, you know, to the extent we're entering into a downturn in the economy, uh, both local and state revenues, uh, tax revenues will will uh, will suffer, and you've got this decision now that you're supposed to implement. So it's um, 
yeah, it's a difficult time uh, to try to implement a remedy under the cir circumstances that we have. But I suspect they will claim that whatever they do, that it does uh, remedy the situation and they'll do something that will show something, maybe reallocate money across school districts, uh, say it's more equitable now. So there are various things that they could do and declare a victory. But then you say the plaintiffs could just come right back and refile this lawsuit, and then that we would go through maybe another several years of litigation over all of it. Is that uh, another possible yeah. outcome? Well, it is when you consider the premise of the finding of the liability was that the student performance levels were not high enough, that there were these achievement gaps, which you know we know exist all over the country. And so the idea that Pennsylvania would come up with some silver bullet in their remedy here that would address those conditions in a meaningful way uh, over the next year or two or three or four even, um, I think is, um, uh, I guess to quote Greenspan, irrationally exuberant to think that that would, would play out that way. So it's um, the, the decision is, is lengthy. It certainly focuses on achievement gaps and the idea that those will have to be remedied in some way. Well, now some people are saying that actually, if you do come up with the money, it's gonna make a difference. And a lot of studies are looking at specific situations, uh, come up with findings that support that. But if that were really the case, given the really large increase in expenditures in the United States over the last 20, 25 years and, and longer, and given the declining performance on the National Assessment of Educational Progress in the last 10 years, uh, the last decade or so, even before COVID, it's, it's hard to see that, you know, falling test scores and rising expenditures prove that financing really makes a big difference. Well, I mean, I think that that is one of the problems with these um, these studies and the research that has these complex models that claim that where there have been these money drops or, or, or infusion of a lot of additional dollars, that that somehow you know, definitively establishes that spending a lot more money makes a big difference in outcomes because it's, it's in conflict with our common experience, which you just laid out, that we've spent a lot more money on schools over in real dollars over the past 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and yet our test score performance, as we see on NAEP and in other measures, has been flat or declining. And so it, it, it's in conflict with our common experience. That's why I think um, that, I think, is the biggest weakness of that research, is that how do you reconcile that? Well, I'm, you know, has anybody thought about coming up with a different remedy? So you say, okay, the Constitution requires a thorough and efficient uh, form of education, if you're going to stretch the meaning of that to cover uh, uh, that they have to have schools that perform at a certain level, instead of constantly proposing and reproposing more money for schools, which is what's been happening in these cases up until now, why haven't some plaintiffs called for uh, other reforms such as school choice, uh, maybe more charter schools or maybe more money given directly to parents through vouchers or tax credits or, or some other organizational reform that would introduce competition into the system that could possibly be beneficial. Why isn't that the remedy of choice? 
Um, I think it has to do with the dynamics of the litigation and the dynamics of the litigation in this case, for sure, is public school districts are the plaintiffs. And uh, the question is, what do public school districts that have brought this case really want to achieve here? Um, I think they sincerely believe, um, if we were to accept the findings, that the problem that they confront is a lack of resources. And so uh, they're not uh, inclined to the view that you've laid out with, that choice or competition or higher levels of accountability would somehow uh, uh, would somehow result in better performance. And so I think it is a it is another reason why I think the political question or the justiciability point that we talked about in terms of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's uh, findings is so important because those kinds of choices or options about how to improve schools are not, at th those people are not at the table. The people that would advocate uh, for that are not at the table, whereas they would be at the table in the political process. They're not at the table in the judicial process, which is limited to the parties that are in the case. Well, yes, in this particular case, I can understand that, but why isn't, why don't we see plaintiffs? I mean, the, the school choice movement is pretty well organized in the United States. They've been trying to get bills passed in state legislatures, and they've been trying to get more charter schools. So they're they're not a disorganized outfit in, anymore. They were maybe 20 years ago. So why aren't they filing lawsuits that are comparable to the kinds of lawsuits that we uh, have on the part of school districts for, for additional funding? Well, I mean, I, that just hasn't occurred, and I don't know exactly why uh, it hasn't occurred. It could be resources. It could be what they're focused on that's important to them as opposed to what is important to traditional public schools. Um, public school districts have resources, of course, to bring these kinds of cases in ways that, that private organizations don't. Um, so I don't know, but your point is well taken, which is there's a range of things that we know from the research that can be effective in improving student performance and maybe those should be given a try. I will say that, you know, this judge, even in her long decision, does say at the very end that, that the reform that's needed here need not be entirely financial. So there is a there is a line or two in this long decision um, that maybe invites that. Well, it could, uh, but of course, um... It, it, in all cases like this, you've got to cite precedents and, and so forth. Is there anything out there of a precedential nature that 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 uh, the school choice community could could hang their hat on that that could say, OK, on the basis of this, we think that there's a, a legal case here? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's a case to be cited. Obviously, there's research to cite if you were inclined to say, look, this state performance is too is low and there's all these disparities and, and these gaps. And here are a set of initiatives and 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 um, uh, interventions that have proven to be very successful. Um, you know, I, I think it's a question of where you devote your resources. Are you going to pursue the legislative effort to 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 get the kinds of policies you want, or are you going to pursue the litigation uh, path? Um, Oftentimes, I mean, almost always, the plaintiffs in these cases have realized that the legislative path isn't going to work for whatever reason, because of the limitations of the budget, because of the way in which schools are organized, because the suburban communities want to continue to fund their schools at high levels. Uh, and therefore, they turn to the courts, which is a workaround, in a sense, to the legislative process. Advocates for choice um, 
maybe they're having more success legislatively, politically. So um, I don't know that there's a, a, a clear answer to your question about can, what can you cite. I think it, it's it's one that's worth exploring though and thinking about. Well, maybe this is a this is a, a law school article or a law journal article uh, uh, to uh, to begin to work out what kind of a case uh, you could make uh, that would call for a different kind of remedy. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Rocco, for, for joining me on the Education Exchange to discuss this uh, very interesting decision that has emerged uh, out of Pennsylvania. Well, thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Rocco Testani. He's an attorney at Evershed Sutherland in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of the country's leading experts on school adequacy and school equity lawsuits. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.